0: Journalists at the New York Times, a former newspaper, have been working hard to try to figure out why there are so many mass killings in Europe and America lately. The headline of a recent article announces their latest brilliant insight. Mass killings may have created a contagion feeding on itself. In the article, Times writer Benedict Carey says, quote, and this is a real quote, the recent horrifying rash of massacres suggests that public, widely covered rampage killings have led to a kind of contagion, prompting a small number of people with strong personal grievances and scant political ideology to mine previous attacks for both methods and potential targets to express their lethal anger and despair, unquote. Clearly, then, the key to discovering the motives of these attackers is to explore what their strong personal grievances may be. So, let's take a look. When a Muslim man slaughtered people in a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, in June, telling police, I am killing people in the service of the Islamic State because I am Islamic and must murder Westerners for being infidels so that they will submit to the worldwide caliphate, It may have been because right-wing Republicans had inspired him to feel homophobia. When a group of Islamic men attacked a church in France and slaughtered the priests saying, Allahu Akbar, we must kill Christians because we are Muslims attempting to establish a worldwide Islamic caliphate through terror and death, it could have been because they'd been made angry by backward Catholic attitudes that forced their girlfriends to sneak into back alleys to obtain illegal abortions so they wouldn't be punished with a baby simply because they'd had sex with radical Islamists who want to kill everybody in the name of of Allah. When a man in Nice, France, murdered more than 30 people, 80 people, by running them over with a truck while screaming out the window, I do this for the sake of Mohammed so that non-Muslims will die in droves and others will convert in terror, thus leading to a worldwide caliphate. It was probably because his mother wouldn't let him play with trucks as a child, because she was oppressed by the patriarchy and trucks had come to seem to her a phallic symbol of the males who had forced her to play out cisnormal gender roles when her spirit yearned to flee Fly free by using the urinal in a men's bathroom while singing body songs in a deep voice. Likewise, the gunmen who entered a cafe in Bangladesh and shot people dead if they couldn't recite verses from the Koran may have been inspired by playing violent video games, which emphasize the use of guns, which are easier to get than books, even books about guns, which are easier to get than nice books about peaceful things, like, say, the Koran, which you should be able to get easily so you can quote verses from it or else these people will kill you because of the video games they've been playing. All in all, we can trust the New York Times to continue to explore the hidden motives of these random lone wolf attacks around the world until each and every Times journalist has either found the truth or has been beheaded for being an infidel. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I just thought, you know, I thought politics is getting so grim, I'll do something lighthearted. <clears throat> <Yeah. laughs> You know, just, just amazing, amazing stuff. All right, we got a million things to talk about, so we got to get going. We have Heather McDonald, as I've said many times, one of the best journalists in the country, is going to come on and talk about her great new bestseller, "The War on Cops," which is uh, obviously very relevant. Uh, it pertains to the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we're also going to talk about obviously uh, Obama's speech last night and the Trump presser. So we got to get going. But I just want to point out before we plunge into the eternal darkness of the Clavenless weekend, I guess it can't both be a weekend and eternal, but we'll just call it the darkness of the Clavenless weekend. I just want to point out that during the Claven week, many good things actually happen. I mean, the Freddie Gray charges were dropped in Baltimore, the cops have stopped being persecuted. This uh, crazed district attorney who was obviously following her agenda by persecuting cops. She's done. She'll probably get sued. Uh, All the charges against the Planned Parenthood videographer who caught Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, selling baby parts. So they charged him, you know, as I have told you, when it's a scandal on the left, it's it a scandal on the right, it's a scandal that matters. When it's a scandal on the left, what matters is, the, how did you get that information? That's not right, you know? So they charge this guy. And then uh, Dinesh D'Souza's Hillary's America, which we've been plugging, has is now the top-grossing documentary of the year, broke in the top ten, in it's opening weekend, so that's go- doing good. You know, the fact is, there's a lot of good news everywhere, except in politics, except Except in politics, it's really this like devil's compact between the left and the Islamists uh, that is really taking on a society that's doing great. You know all these technological innovations, the Uber economy that they're trying to stomp on, new arts that are being created through new technologies. Really, actually, things are going well. All right. So tonight in the at the DNC, Hillary will speak. We have a preview of her speech.
1: Why can't
0: you give? That's just just scary. Let me me tell you what's even scarier, okay? I'm making jokes here. I'm doing satire. But it's hard to keep ahead of reality. Yesterday, Yesterday, I made a joke that I thought was actually a pretty good one that the networks had released their response to Obama's speech just the way they release speeches. They pre release speeches, they'll send you the transcript. So the networks had released their analysis. And this is my joke. This is me. After the White House released the transcript of the president's planned remarks, the three major networks released their transcripts of their planned analysis of the remarks. ABC will call the speech an uplifting, inspiring end to this chapter in a historic president's magnificent career. CBS will call it an inspiring and uplifting end to a magnificent president's chapter in history. And NBC will call it a magnificent end of inspiring uplift and an uplifting chapter of inspiration of magnificence history. Uplift, magnificent, inspiration, president. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so that's that's the satire. Here's the real reaction. Uh, the the, the uh, network's reaction. Yeah, there it is. Two. Barack Obama in full Sunday meeting mode, preaching to a choir which sang a chorus of amens. The first African-American president challenging Democrats to make history again. The biggest difference in this election, he said is the very meaning of our
2: democracy.
1: This was President Obama
0: at his best. 12 years to the day he burst on the national
2: scene. Two-term President Barack Obama gives his political valedictory. Grateful, emotional at the end. Thanking the American people for picking him up when he was down. Passing the baton, as he said. To Hillary Clinton. Remarkably generous speech for a president to give. The roar is deafening here in this arena. President Obama delivering a, a speech of powerful art, embracing hope and optimism, a passionate endorsement of Hillary Rodham Clinton, and at times an artful takedown of Donald Trump. <laughs> it
0: was just it was an artful, t- it was artful It was artful. Now, I have to be honest, it was a good speech. You know, Obama is a good politician, and he doesn't have – Bill Clinton is a, f- a feel politician. He likes people, and so he projects the fact that he actually does like people, especially if they're in skirts. But, I mean, he does – he really does like people, and you, he pro- he's able to project that with that folksy thing that he does. Obama despises all human beings because they haven't achieved his level of evolution. So he has to be a great politician by thinking. He's a, he's a Leonard Nimoy politician, a, doc- a Mr. Spock politician who figures out what's going on. And what he figured out was that there was a hole left in the body politic by the nomination of Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is not a conservative. And this is what he said. Play the second Obama speech cut. I think it is number 10.
2: Look, we Democrats have always had plenty of differences with the Republican Party. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's precisely this contest of idea that pushes our country forward. But what we heard in Cleveland last week wasn't particularly Republican, and it sure wasn't conservative. What we heard was a deeply pessimistic vision of a country where we turn against each other and turn away from the rest of the world. There were no serious solutions to pressing problems, just the fanning of resentment and blame and anger and hate. And that is not the America I know.
0: That's not who we are. I always, I always wait. He just should have like the old Groucho Marx show. A little duck should come down with the sign says, "That's not who we are." But he's right. He's right. The Trump nomination is not a typical Republican nomination. It's certainly not a conservative nomination. And so Obama sneaks into that space, sneaks into that space that's left open, and he gives a conservative speech. It was a, that's a, it's really an act of political genius in a way. Play cut number 11.
2: And that's another bet that Donald Trump will lose. And the reason he'll lose it is because he's selling the American people short. We're not a fragile people. We're not a frightful people. Our power doesn't come from some self-declared savior promising that he alone can restore order as long as we do things his way. We don't look to be ruled. Our power, our power, comes from those immortal declarations first put to paper right here in Philadelphia all those years ago. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that we, the people, can form a more perfect union.
0: It's like Ronald Reagan called. He wants his speech back. You know, he's like, never mind. Ted Cruz called. He wants it. You know, Ted Cruz figured oh, I'm not going to be making this speech. Maybe Obama wants it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, this is the guy who has a phone and a pen. And now suddenly he knows we don't want to be ruled. This is the guy who promised he was going to roll back the rise of the ocean. And now he's telling us we don't want a strong man. I mean, this is amazing. He is. He saw the opening and he ran through it because he realized that that you know, guy, our Ted Cruz, conservative guy, isn't there. So suddenly, suddenly the Democrats, outside, by the way, they're burning the flag. Outside protesters are burning the flag. They haven't got a flag on stage until somebody mentioned that they hadn't got a flag on stage. And suddenly the Democrats are the American Party. They love this country. These are the people wearing hats to say America was never great. This is the <laughs> this is the guys who say, oh, the White House built by slaves. You know, they, suddenly they're the American Party. I mean, it, it's galling, but it was smart. It was smart. I don't think it's going to work because I think they still have to get to Hillary Clinton. When they get to Hillary Clinton, people hate her when they see her. So then, on the other side, Trump gives a presser, and here you see the, a lying demagogue making deals with the Russians. This is my last flight yeah. for you. Yeah, After my election, I have more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. I understand. I transmit this information to Vladimir and Vladimir. Oh, oh wait, sorry, that's the wrong line, demagogue. I'm sorry. (laughs) The press goes mad, goes insane, because Donald Trump is talking about the hack of the uh, DNC emails, and basically he says, I hope the Russians find all the emails, everybody's emails. So play Trump number three, the third cut. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. He doesn't respect our president. And if it is Russia, which is probably not. Nobody knows who it is. But if it is Russia, it's really bad for a different reason. Because it shows how little respect they have for our country when they would hack into a major party and get everything. But it would be interesting to see. I I will tell you this. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Let's see if that happens. That'll be next. Oh, my God, it's treason. He has got. He wants the Russians to get all our secrets by getting Hillary's emails. Only problem is, these are the emails that she said were just her personal emails. These are the ones about yoga. What do we care yeah. if they get our emails about yoga? You know, Putin will be doing yoga. So what? You know, what do we care? You know, these are the things they said. were There was no national security problem, but suddenly— Donald Trump is a Russian spy because he's calling for this. Also, by the way, it was Hillary who took money, took money from a Canadian mining magnet to help the Russians get control of most of our uranium uh, through a uranium mine. So, you know, it's it's just nonsense. And as I've said it before here, I made the joke that Wolf Blitzer has become the wolf who cried boy. But Jonah Goldberg wrote a good (laughs) column basically saying that this is what this is what the press always says. This is what they always say about Republican candidates. He writes that uh, that when, when now when they attack Donald Trump, Trump operatives will respond. That's what they always say about Republicans, and they'll be right because they've been da- demonizing Republicans forever. And now the actual wolf is among the fold. This is an actual demagogue and may, who, who uh, caters to racists. I don't think he's racist himself, but he caters to racists. But now they have no authority, no moral authority to speak. All right, let's bring on—we're going to stay on Facebook, right? Yay, so you guys, you lucky dogs. But you should come to The Daily Wire and subscribe anyway so you can watch the show and you can be in the mailbag. You have heard me say this, I don't know how many times, four or five times, at least during the course of the show. Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute is, if not the best reporter in the country, she is one of the best reporters in the country. In a fair world, she would be using Pulitzer Prizes for coasters on her coffee table. Even in this world, she's been rewarded plenty. She's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow of the Manhattan Institute. She's gotten all kinds of awards. Here's Rudy Giuliani talking about her work for City Journal. Saying, Heather McDonald is an unsung hero in the transformation of New York into the safest large city in the United States. Her essays helped to lay out the rationale that gave me and my police commissioners guidance during the largest continuous reduction of crime ever accomplished in our city and nation. The great Shelby Steele calls her the best and most intrepid journalist writing on racial issues today. She now has a new best selling book called The War on Cops, and we're gonna have her on to talk about it. Heather, have we got you?
1: Yes, I'm
0: here. Oh hi, Heather. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you. Um, you know, your work is so terrific, I'm so and I'm so thrilled and proud that The War on Cops is now a major bestseller, as it should be. Uh, people can—I've have. I've been reading your work for years and years on City Journal, and I hope people will. So let's talk about this. I want to start by playing you just a short cut of Obama's reaction to the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philandro Castile. Now, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about Obama's narrative that this is. these are not individual incidents. But this is systemic.
2: So here's our president. These are not isolated incidents. They're symptomatic of a broader set of racial disparities that exist in our criminal justice system. And I just want to give people a few statistics to try to put in context why emotions are so raw around these issues. According to various studies, not just one, but a wide range of studies that have been carried out over a number of years, African Americans are 30 percent more likely than whites to be pulled over. After being pulled over, African Americans and Hispanics are three times more likely to be searched. Last year, African Americans were shot by police at more than twice The rate of of whites. Okay, that's the
0: Obama narrative. What do we find out if we read Heather McDonald's "The War on Cops"?
1: It tells us that these are very dangerous lies. We don't have a policing problem in this country, Andrew. We have a crime problem. Obama was assiduously silent about the racially disproportionate crime rates that are responsible for those types of policing disparities. I'm, I'm once again hearing now. It's it's a a more distant echo okay um, well okay I'll, I'll just try but I okay, try okay and it's better through. now but okay. I was again hearing an echo of my yeah. voice um, you cannot understand policing today Andrew without understanding crime because policing is data-driven if blacks are arrested at twice the rate of whites there's a very simple straightforward and non-racial explanation for that it's because they commit violent crime at at wildly disproportionate rates blacks commit homicide at 8 times the rate of whites and hispanics combined and if you take hispanics out of that equation you get a homicide disparity between blacks and whites of about 11 to 12 times obama refuses to tell the nation the truth about why police are in inner city ne- neighborhoods they're there to protect the many innocent black lives that are being mowed down by these mindless drive-by shootings, and to make police the scapegoat and to blame the messenger for the very uncomfortable truth about black crime is now resulting in even more black lives being lost as police back off of proactive policing.
0: You've you've coined the term the Ferguson effect. That was your term, wasn't it?
1: Well, the St. Louis police chief, Sam Dotson, used it to refer to what was going on in St. Louis after the Ferguson riots, after the Michael Brown hoax, the hands up, don't shoot hoax. I then noticed that crime was going up across the country in cities with large black populations. And I was hearing from officers across the country uh, that they were experiencing a level of hatred and resistance on the streets that was nearly unprecedented. Uh, thanks to this calumny of the Black Lives Matter narrative. and A police officer in Chicago, I was out there about two months ago, told me he's never experienced such hatred in his 19 years on the job. He said the job is basically undoable. And as a result of the narrative that cops are racist, in conjunction with the, the cursing, the jeering, the physical resistance, the interference with their arrest, Cops are backing off of discretionary proactive policing, and as a result, what we saw last year, a homicide increase in cities with large black populations anywhere between 54 percent in Washington, D.C., to 90 percent in Cleveland, and overall a 17 percent increase in homicides in the largest 56 cities. That's nearly unprecedented.
0: You you talked about when Donald Trump got up and gave a speech talking. You know, they everybody said, "Oh, what a dark, dark speech!" Because he talked about the rise in crime, and the fact check uh, people were all saying, "No, no, the crime has been going down." Obama said it last night in his speech. But you basically said Trump was right.
1: Trump is absolutely right. They they are. It's extraordinary the resistance to acknowledging that proactive policing matters for better or worse. Nobody wants to admit that police can lower crime, and they don't want to admit that when the police back off, crime goes up. What the inevitable strategy is for denying the Ferguson effect is to use 2014 numbers and say, well, uh, through 2014, crime was low uh, and continuing to go down, but it reversed in in the second half of 2014, for sure, even after that 17 percent increase in homicides last year we're still below the early 1990s levels, because that's we've had a 50 percent drop in crime over two decades. But if we continue at this rate, and we seem to be, because this year we've had a 15 percent increase in homicides on top of last year's 17 percent increase. If this continues, it won't take very long to completely wipe out the two decades-long violent crime decrease that this nation has enjoyed.
0: You know, This plays into uh, Obama's anti-gun narrative, too, it seems to me, because when the police went out and took extraordinary, not extraordinary measures, but uh, what can I call them, aggressive measures to take guns off the streets of New York with their stop and search plan, the liberals piled on and basically got stop and search revoked, didn't they? I mean, they, there are now more guns in these neighborhoods than there were before. Is that not true?
1: Officers will tell you that people that were borderline before and were not necessarily carrying guns because of the risk of getting stopped, are now carrying. Is do we have a problem here with the blower? That's <laughs> all right. Um, okay. Um, the best gun control is proactive policing. You know that that distinguishes the lawful gun carriers from the unlawful gun carriers, and and when you have cops willing to get out of their cars at 1 a.m. And, and, and question a group of guys hanging out on a known drug corner, one of whom seems to be hitching up his waistband as if he has a gun, uh, that deters thugs and gangbangers from packing heat. Uh, but when officers are now not willing to get out of their cars because they're terrified that if an encounter with a black suspect goes awry, their career is at stake, they'll become the latest CNN racist cop of the week played in endless video loops. Uh, when cops just drive on by and wait for a 911 call uh, after somebody's already been victimized, that gives free rein uh, to people with criminal intentions. And, and Chicago right now is a crystalline example of the Ferguson effect where you have sh- stops, pedestrian stops down 90 percent and 2,300 people as of July 19 shot. The number of police officers who shot people is 0.5%. There were 12 police shootings compared to 2,300. If you believe Black Lives Matter narrative, of course, you would think that the majority of those 23, 2,300 shootings were committed by cops. In fact, cops were, the 12 shootings were of, of armed and resisting suspects. It's blacks who were killing other blacks.
0: We're talking to Heather McDonald about her book, The War on Cops, a best-selling book, really brilliant reporting about the the truth, about what it's like on the streets for police officers and what Obama's narrative is doing. So you saw, obviously, the mothers of the movement, as they were called, who stood up uh, at the Democratic Convention and talked about their children who had been killed. When you see that, I mean, that's a very powerful narrative. Obviously, mothers who lose their children is a tough narrative to counter. Do you... Do you feel that the word is getting out? I mean, you're talking about the facts. You're talking about what you're saying is is really irrefutable. Do you feel that you have any chance of beating that kind of emotional narrative with the truth?
1: Well, not if Hillary Clinton is elected. And and this is not intended as any kind of political endorsement one way or another. But uh, Clinton has put us on very clear notice that if she is elected, she will double down on Obama's dangerous lies about the criminal justice narrative. She's announced that she wants to put the nation's police through implicit bias training. This is complete junk science. It's a fraud. Uh, In fact, officers are less likely to shoot blacks than whites. They take longer to decide to shoot armed black suspects than armed white suspects. And they're less likely to shoot unarmed black suspects than unarmed white suspects. But she is so desperate to pander to the black victimologists that uh, she's going to continue this and we can look forward to a further breakdown of law and order, more assassinations of cops, and equally importantly, uh, the black victimization rate is going to continue going up and we're going to get lives lost like you know, the, the three-year-old boy who was shot in Chicago on Father's Day of this year, who's now paralyzed for life, the three children in Cleveland under the age of five who were killed in September alone last year, nobody knows their names. The idea that the press cares about black lives is a complete uh, fraud. Everybody, the world knows the name of the, of the thug Michael Brown, but when innocent black lives are taken by black gang bangers, the world
0: looks the other way. Uh, well, we're going to have to leave it there, Heather. I'm sorry for the sound problems at uh, first, but I really appreciate your coming on. I hope you come back again. Author of The War on Cops, a bestseller that tells the truth about what's happening on the streets. Heather, you do great work. As you know, I'm just your biggest fan. So I'll see you again. <laughs> Such a treat, Andrew.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Bye-bye. Jonathan Hay, good job getting that uh, working again. I appreciate it. All right, let's end with some stuff I like before I leave you, dump you in the uh, in the Clavenless weekend. Yes, there's The War on Cops on the screen. Good. The War on Cops by Heather McDonald. You've got to get this book. You've got to read it. She does such good work and look for her work on City Journal. She has a great piece up right now on cityjournal.org about the Chicago situation. Let me end on an up note before uh, you go away. I have to talk. I love to end stuff I like at the end of the week with music, and uh, I have to talk a little bit about Marnie Nixon. Anna, we have a guest here. Anna, you're a young lady. Have you ever heard of Marnie Nixon? Do you know who that is? No, nobody knows who it is. She is, the New York Times had a good line about her. They called her an unsung singer. During the 50s and 60s, a lot of times when they would make some of the biggest musicals ever, the biggest movie musicals ever, uh, you know, The King and I, My Fair Lady, West Side Story. These were huge Oscar winning musicals. They would cast very good actresses Deborah Carr in The King and I, Natalie Wood in West Side Story, Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. Excellent, excellent uh, actors. But Actresses, but actresses who couldn't sing. And so they would always call the same person Marnie Nixon, and Marnie Nixon would sing for them and so she died she was 86 but she was the voice of many many of these musicals you know one of my earliest memories as a tiny tiny boy maybe 3 years old was seeing Julie Andrews on the stage in My Fair Lady I just remember the opening scene yeah the opening scene and when they went and made My Fair Lady as a movie they put Audrey Hepburn in it and hilariously uh Julie Andrews then won the Oscar for Mary Poppins and got up and thanked them for not putting her in My Fair yeah, Lady yeah. because she won the Oscar for Mary Poppins and Uh, Oh, uh, goodbye to Facebook, and we will see you next week. And can I continue? Because I'm just going to wrap it up. Okay. So Marnie Nixon uh, dubbed Audrey Hepburn. She dubbed uh, Deborah Carr, all these people. Here is just a brief selection of her, including from the uh, Disney film Mulan, which I've never seen. But this is just a brief compilation of her singing in all these different women's voices.
1: Getting to know you.
0: Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you Getting to like you Getting to hope
1: you like me Beads of jade for beauty You
0: must proudly show it Now add a cricket just for Can't blow it. I feel pretty, oh, so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and gay, and I pity any girl who's in me today. singing the part of Anna in The King and I, she received, uh, Marnie Nixon received $420. And all these actresses, when Oscars went on to, to enormous fame, they all were singing in the voice of Marnie Nixon dead at 86. All right. The Clavenless Weekend begins. Stock up on water, guns, and bullets. We'll be back on Monday if you survive. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Thanks for listening.